the fun story is, and Ray Liotta has told this story, is that Nick Pileggi had set up an evening at Rayo's, which is a famous restaurant in East Harlem, Italian restaurant, and set up a dinner for Marty and Ray Liotta and Nick Pileggi. And Nick had told different people that we were going to be there that evening. Yes, that is a teaser of today's guest, Ellen Lewis, telling me about how she was introduced to the mafia while casting legendary gangster pick Goodfellas. In our conversation, we discuss everything from her decades of working with Martin Scorsese to casting Forrest Gump and The Devil Wears Prada, what makes a great headshot for actors, lessons from Mike Nichols, and how Margot Robbie got her star turn in The Wolf of Wall Street. I had such a great time with Ellen, just barely scratching the surface of all the questions I could have asked. But that's enough for me. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film crew member turned screenwriter working in London. Each episode, I bring you life lessons and stories from the people behind your favorite movies and shows to help demystify the business for aspiring filmmakers and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is one of the key creative decision makers behind a number of the world's most well-loved movies. Beginning her career casting under the legendary Juliette Taylor, she later went out alone, casting beloved titles including Forrest Gump, The Devil Wears Prada, Mamma Mia and Scent of a Woman. It has been her collaborations though that have made up a bulk of her incredible career, notably her three films with Steven Spielberg and a collaboration with Martin Scorsese that runs all the way back to the 80s, encompassing Goodfellas, Casino, The Departed and many, many more. Our guest is Ellen Lewis. How are you doing today? Thanks, Mike. Good. Now, Ellen, I ask all of my guests the same first question, and that is, what did your parents do and did it affect your career choices moving forward? My dad owned women's clothing stores in Chicago with his brothers that was started by his father. And my mom was a mom and a homemaker, but my mother was very artistically inclined. And so I think that she exposed myself and my brothers to a lot of theater and the Chicago Symphony and the Art Institute in Chicago. So my mom definitely had a strong influence on me. That's great. And when was it therefore that you realized you wanted to get into the film industry? Was it around high school or college? You went to Columbia, right? I did, but I went to a school in Chicago called Francis Parker, which is a very interesting private school in Chicago um, that had strong art departments there. But I was not drawn to uh, film at that point. I went to a couple of colleges before I ended up back in Chicago at Columbia College. And at Columbia, I was initially studying, I think it was video at that time and you know, maybe screenwriting. And then I ended up in their film department. But I had gone to the school for a couple of years at um, in Los Angeles and then in New Hampshire and ended up back in Chicago, where I dropped out of school for a while before I went, started going to Columbia. And I grew up with David Mamet. And at that time that I was back in Chicago, which was about 1974, through my friend Rocco Jans, who's a musician and who wrote a lot of music for David's early plays and films, um, I was around 
the Chicago um, theater community and the St. Nicholas Theater, the forming of the St. Nicholas Theater, which was David and W.H. Macy, Stephen Schachter, and Patricia Cox. And it was a fantastic time to be in Chicago, very creative, a lot of music, a lot of theater. And then I ended up back at Columbia and they were, I did internships there and ended up quitting. So I do not have a degree. And I was a production assistant on early cable, uh, some early cable shows. So this is like 1980, 1981 in Chicago. So they were doing, you know, the Four Tops live at the Park West, uh, which was a, a great music venue in Chicago and um, some comedy specials. And then that led me to a trip to Los Angeles where I was doing some scouting for a show that this company was going to be doing that was, you know, what, what's, what were the male strip clubs called? You know, the, that show that they did, you know, the Channing Tatum thing. Magic Mike thing. That. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> anyway, I was introduced um, through a friend that I grew up with, Betsy Hyman, who was a costume designer, to a guy named Erwin Stoff. And Erwin is a manager, and, you know, we, he was early in his career. And Erwin said to me, what are you, why are you doing this? <laughs> I think you'd be good in casting. And people in Chicago at that point were moving to New York. They weren't moving to Los Angeles. They were moving to New York. So I thought, well, I'll look around a little bit. And I did. They're doing some work outside my building right now. And this thing is coming down, just so you know. (laughs) Don't worry about it. I'll leave that in. (laughs) And so I met with people at cable companies through people that I knew who made some introductions for me. And then David, by chance, was introduced to Juliet Taylor and got me an interview with Juliet. And I immediately felt, you know, comfortable with her. I was going to go to L.A. for a couple of weeks to take meetings. And I canceled that, went back to Chicago and got a phone service on my phone and waited to hear from Juliet. Wow. So it was David Mamet that introduced you to Juliet. David introduced me to Juliet, definitely. Yes. Interesting. And why was it, do you think, that Irwin thought you would be good in casting? It seems like quite a nebulous thing to say that changed your career. I don't know. He just, I don't know. I mean, he's still a dear friend today. And um, I'm just happy that he had that instinct because he was right. I love it. Would you say that going to film school is a good choice for those that want to be casting directors? Because it doesn't seem quite as correlated in some senses as some of the other crafts, doesn't it? Right. Well, when you're in film school, I mean, the things that are taught more specifically, obviously, are directing, editing, screenwriting. But when you work on a set, which I did one summer when I was still at Columbia, I went to Los Angeles through my friend Betsy Hyman. And so I was a production assistant on that movie, Euphoria. And I kind of looked around that set because people were like, you should just stay in L.A. and get a job. You'll be able to get a job. You'll be able to be a PA. I looked around the set and I really didn't quite see where I would fit. So I decided to go back to Chicago and, and continue at Columbia because it was a summer internship that I did. So to skip back to talking about working with Juliet there. 
this is a big question. I'm sure there's too many to list, but you worked with her for eight and a half years. What were some of the key lessons you learned from her? Because she's a legend of the field. Everything, everything, everything. I mean, I really was so lucky that that Juliet is who I, I worked for for all of that time. And, you know, very aware of Juliet worked for Marion Dougherty. And I don't know if people have watched Casting By, but it's a wonderful documentary about casting that really is about Marion and Lynn Stallmaster and kind of more the history of casting. But I felt, you know, I was very much a part of a family. And Juliet was a fantastic mentor and teacher. Many casting directors worked for other casting directors because it's like an old-fashioned trade where you learn by generally working for somebody, although there are amazing casting directors who didn't do that. Ellen Chenoweth didn't do it. Vicki Thomas didn't work for anybody. So there are fantastic, fantastic casting directors who didn't come up like that, but many of us did. You've mentioned that casting can be elusive as a profession, which you touched on just there. Would you be able to talk about early tasks of yours that you had as an assistant that they would do rather than a casting director like yourself? When I started working for Juliet, I answered the phone, which I really liked a lot. And I did the scheduling for the appointments, the casting of the actors coming in. I sat, I mean, this is all different now because so many people self-tape and they send their tapes in. It was fantastic to sit in a waiting room with the actors. It's how I met people, it, it developed relationships, and it became very sensitive to what an actor waiting for an appointment, whether or not somebody wanted to chat or not chat because they were anxious or preparing for their audition. So, you know, really the beginning. And then the other thing that Juliet was fantastic with was that something that many of us started with were if she was working on a movie and looking for kids, that was kind of a little search that that you would do. And I was also really lucky. Broadway Danny Rose was the first movie Juliet was working on when I started to work for her. Woody Allen film. And there are these wild variety acts in that movie. And she put me in charge of getting in touch with the agents and managers and looking for those people to audition for Woody for the variety acts. It was a lot of fun. So that was like my earliest, but I was in the waiting room for many years, which was as I say, fantastic. Jordan Thaler worked there, uh, who's head of casting at the Public Theater. His brother, Todd Thaler, was doing extras for the Woody Allen movies for a while. He's a wonderful casting director. And so we were all in this outside room and Julia was in the inside room. And it was a very familial and warm environment to be in. Am I right that one of the first movies that you did when you were with Juliet was New York Stories, which I guess began your collaboration with Marty to some extent? I mean, I'd been working for Juliet at that point, probably for about seven and a half years. So I was already fully her associate at that point. You know, I was very lucky to, I had a very warm relationship with Mike Nichols, who I, as I was still working for Juliet, if she was taking a summer little time off and Mike was doing a play, I worked on those with Mike. He really gave me a tremendous amount of confidence and had a lot to do with building up my 
self-esteem as I was kind of venturing out. I would go on location at times, Biloxi Blues and different movies Mike would do. I would go and then just be communicating with Juliet. But Juliet is like the queen. Juliet is the greatest casting director of all time. So I just was lucky to be there. But New York Stories, I was Juliet's associate on Woody's New York Stories. And Bob Greenhut, who was Woody's producer at that time, was producing all three films, Francis Coppola's movie and Marty's movie. And Marty didn't have a casting director at that moment. And so he recommended me. And I went and met Marty and did Life Lessons and then went back and I worked for Juliet. And then they called me to do Goodfellas. And then I might have gone back and worked for Juliet again. I mean, I was I was kind of ready to go out on my own, but I still a little reluctant. So then I did Goodfellas. So yes, clearly that had a huge effect on my career. I can imagine. What was the first brief that you had from Marty for Goodfellas? I don't know if there was a specific brief. I think that what I was lucky with is that we had a connection right away, a creative connection right away in that, you know, like I met Debbie Mazur and was excited immediately when I met her. And, you know, the fact that Marty felt that same connection when he met her and felt that, you know, Debbie was perfect for the film. I mean, the fun story is, and Ray Liotta has told this story, is that Nick Pileggi had set up an evening at Rayo's, which is a famous restaurant in East Harlem, Italian restaurant, and set up a dinner for Marty and Ray Liotta and Nick Pileggi. And Nick had told different people that we were going to be there that evening. And then at a certain point, people started being brought to the table to meet Marty. And there were people who we were told were a little too high up that we couldn't think of for the film. But then there were other people that I should meet and that we could think of for the film. And that was a memorable night, to say the least. And several of those people are in the movie and have been in other films. And then, you know, Sis Corman did an amazing, amazing work with Marty on several movies, obviously Raging Bull. And then there are people that Marty knew he wanted from Raging Bull to be in the film. And I don't know, it just really worked. But then the other a, a very exciting thing was that the, his next film was The Age of Innocence. So another director might have said, well, you did a really nice job with these mobsters. So I don't, this next movie of Edith Wharton, I don't think you'll be, and you'll be able to handle or possibly. But The Age of Innocence is one of my favorite books. And I was just thrilled that that was the next movie that I got to work on for him. That sounds like a hell of a night with the, uh, the family in Harlem there. Am I right that someone once brought a gun to the audition or something? Yeah, there was a guy who came in and said that he had $3,000 with him and that, you know, it was like, it was just a ridiculous thing. But he read, I read him and he was pretty good. And so I decided to have him in to read for Marty, but I actually put a policeman that I was auditioning before him and after him. And so kind of alerted them. But then it turned out that 
one of those cops was like Lou Eppolito was had murdered a lot of people. Jesus anyway, Christ. so I don't know what to say. <laughs> you know, it's but it's a lot of fun to go into the real sector, I think, but obviously to be very safe about doing it. And I met wonderful people who play mobsters in these films and they're the kindest people in the world. So, you know, I'm very lucky. To go from building a mafia world to a very different one, a more recent one in Killers of the Flower Moon, I wanted to ask you about your experience on it and also how you approached the native element of it. Yes, um, I had cast a, a limited series for Scott Frank called Godless. And I was really lucky to work with a fantastic casting director, Renee Haynes, who is amazing and does fantastic casting of natives. And so I immediately, the minute that I knew, I read the book of Killers of the Flower Moon when I knew that Marty was maybe going to do it. It's a wonderful book, disturbing chapter in our history, of course, but a fantastic book. But I right away called Renee and said, I, you know, I think we're going to be doing this and I hope you'll be able to work with me. And she was very familiar with the book as well. And so we were able right before the Thanksgiving. So we're in 2019. We're not in 220 yet to do a series of open calls in Oklahoma. So in Pahuska, where the Osage live, and then in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. And I was with Renee and her fantastic staffing, Kate Sprance and myself. And then obviously in March, the pandemic hit, but it was just so great. And then Renee knows so many fantastic actors in the Native community, but she did and we did try to cast as many people from from Pahuska and the Osage community. So it's really it was it's very uh, we're excited about this movie. And it's an important story about an amazing group of people. Yeah, I'm excited. I saw Brendan Fraser on there. That's amazing. I know that was a funny fluke that we cast Brendan Fraser and John Lithgow right at the end. We needed these lawyers. There were a couple of actors Marty's worked with a lot over the years that weren't available. And, um, you know, that's a great thing. Marty's very open and I can show him clips of people. And I think that Knockwood has worked out really well, but we'll see. You never know. Hopefully it'll be good. So to go from your longstanding collaboration with Marty to more of a single famous movie that you've worked on, I'd love to hear about what happened with your initial casting of Forrest Gump. And also I've seen screen tests and he speaks in, Tom Hanks speaks in a, his normal accent, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, that search was a very stressful search looking for young Forrest. Paramount Pictures had several searches going on simultaneously. So it was great because our film was seeing people at the same time. And so it was very, very challenging. And there were a couple of kids that we had tried that didn't totally work out. And then we got very lucky. And Tom did, that's that boy's accent. And so Tom was just able to mimic that. I mean, that was a very interesting film to cast. Bob is fantastic. His One of his producing partners, Steve Starkey, is a fantastic guy. Um, it was a large cast, you know, it was about a lot of the movies I've done actually have been about 120 people, which is large. And every part is important. I mean, I just want to say, like, I really believe like every single small part is important and fantastic. I love casting small parts, but 
we did open calls all around the area of in North Carolina where we were shooting. So an open call in Savannah and, you know, like three open calls. We cast a huge amount of the movie from those open calls. Bob was very open to that. Um, and Lieutenant Dan was a challenging part. And I was lucky that Tom Hanks had been exposed to some of the people from the Steppenwolf Theater Company in Chicago. Gary Sinise had been amazing in a play called Bomb and Gilead that anyone that you talk to from Chicago or New York who saw this play were forever affected by it. And it was seeing that performance, knowing that Gary, of course, could play the front end of Lieutenant Dan and then the back end of Lieutenant Dan. You know, two very different. Gary is a great actor. So you also cast Haley Joel Osment in it, which was, to my knowledge, his first feature. And he kind of became, you know, the, the most famous child actor of his generation, really. And it's funny because when I was researching, you know, yourself and casting directors, it seems a bit to me like almost you choosing actors and you're supporting them. You're in their corner and almost like you're a parent. So with him, I guess you must have almost literally been like a parent. You know, not, I mean, that was a, such a fluke because we were looking for kids. And ironically, I saw Haley Joel Osment for a second in a pizza commercial. No way. <laughs> and I think he had just moved to Los Angeles with his family and we were able to track him down. And that is how that happened. But obviously the sixth sense is what made him a star. But, you know, he was, um, I think that in casting, and I think we all do this, it's just your antenna is up with whatever you're watching or seeing. And I think that we Alter, I think casting directors in general by going to the theater, watching movies, watching TV, trying to take in as much as we can. But I have to say that for myself, I don't make myself go to plays every night. There are many casting directors who do this. I do not. <laughs> because I don't. And so many casting directors are thrilled to be there every night. I would not be. So I still feel an excitement when I go, which is on a regular basis. But, you know, I also feel very inspired by different photographers like Helen Levitt and Deanne Arbus. I feel very, um, I get a lot of inspiration from being in New York and being amongst people on the subways, walking down the streets, observing faces and people who come from many walks of life. And I feel like casting really was my perfect match because I would take painting when I was in school growing up and different kinds of art classes, but I was not particularly good at it. But what I do is very visual, like a big painting. Oh, it's brilliant that you found your calling. I love it. I did find my calling. It's so true. Each one of those people who walks into your office, you know, those people that you're seeing in the street, seeing in commercials, they're going to need headshots and things like that. And I know that you said better to have one good one than lots of not very good ones. What is it that makes a good headshot for any actor who's listening? You want to look at something that looks like the person so that when the actor, I mean, I want to reference the fact that we're doing a lot of things on Zoom now. We are in a new difficult time, but we can still interact with people in the same way that I'm able to look at you and you can look at me, but I want their I want an actor's photograph to look like what they actually look like rather than all of a sudden somebody is there and they don't look 
like that at all and you're taken by surprise. Most actors, well, most people are familiar with the notion of people like that who will then be doing the auditions. But I think one thing people will be interested in from your point of view in the business is with big actors, how does it work? So for example, on Devil Wears Prada with Miranda Priestley, obviously super famous role now, would it be that the director and yourself literally just go, okay, we're going to give this to Meryl Streep, et cetera. We're going to send it out and that's it. I presume she doesn't have to audition. Correct. But that's kind of done over my head. I'm just going to say, you know, the studio is obviously very involved in that. And Wendy Feinerman, who produced Forrest Gump and brought me in on The Devil Wears Prada and Stepmom. But, you know, that that role is definitely discussed, you know, with the studio and who you're going to be going out to. Um, and Hathaway, that role, I mean, she said she was the last choice for the movie. That's not true at all. But there definitely was a little bit of a process to that. Um, and But then the great thing was that Wendy Feinerman had just seen Emily Blunt in maybe her first movie in England. And then and so that we cast Emily, which was fantastic. And obviously she added a huge amount to the movie and the, and the movie really affected her career in a huge way. And that's the other thing that you never know. I mean, you never know how a movie is going to do and if people are going to see the film and what the reaction is going to be. And everybody just always works their hardest and hopes for the best, but you never know. And I always find it fascinating. I always, a certain role will shine a light on an actor. It's very hard to be an actor. I'm very empathetic to it. I think, you know, very important thing is for actors always to know that we are in their corner. We want you to do well. And that's one of the most important things to me about being a casting director. And what I learned from Marion Dougherty to Juliet to myself is greeting an actor when they come in, thanking an actor when they leave. Only one person is getting the role. So hopefully at least the experience in my office is a good experience. It's nerve wracking for the actors, but it also, is it perhaps nerve wracking for yourself as well? You know, putting someone like Emily Blunt in, who's maybe uh, quite early in her career. And I guess you did the same with Margot Robbie, where you're putting, you know, a lot behind them going in this big role, aren't you? Is it nerve wracking for you? You know, I don't think that that's, I mean, I think the process of when we're casting is once the movie is shooting, you know, the director will make everybody look good. I, I think across the board. I mean, Mark casting Margot obviously was amazing. And that was a process. I had seen a lot of young women and I was very anxious about it because we had already had a day of a couple of people coming in to read for Marty with Leonardo DiCaprio. And so, you know, I had not met Margot. I had only seen her audition tape. And when she showed up for her audition, she just looked like a million bucks. And she did a phenomenal reading with Leo and then came back the next day and read a little more. But, you know, I don't really think about, I mean, I like to know that the shoot is going well because obviously making a movie is very challenging for a director. Um, but it's out of my hands. So, you know, casting are the first people on the film. It's the screenwriter, you have, you know, and then we come on 
to work with the director. And then I, you know, I will stay a little bit in touch with one or two people on the production because I just like to know that it's, <laughs> yeah. things are going okay. Oh, thank you for that brilliant answer. Now to wrap up on Red Carpet Rookies, what we do each time, Ellen, is I do a little quick fire questionnaire, which is my own ode to In the Actor's Studio, which I'm sure you've seen many a time. So if you just think of whatever comes into your head, first of all, if that's okay with you. So the first one is, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever been given? I don't know if there's a specific piece of advice I've been given, but Mike Nichols said at one point that everybody in a piece is a version of the same person. And it's a, it, that's a rather abstract statement and concept, and yet it makes perfect sense to me in an abstract way, but um, in an instinctual way. So I, I like thinking about, I wouldn't call that advice, but, I, but it's an interesting concept that spoke to me. That's all good. Sam Taylor Johnson told me that James L. Brooks told her to change her socks every day. So there's, everyone's got their own, <laughs> their own version of that. So that's a great one. That's good too. Yeah. Number two, do you have a favorite film? I don't know if I have one favorite film. I would say that the two films that I think affected me very early and, and have an influence on my aesthetic is the last picture show and a woman under the influence. Both of those films I saw early. I believe I was in high school. Um, East of Eden also had a big effect on me. And so uh, it's interesting. I think that, yeah, yeah, that I would say that those films. Lovely. Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed every day for a day of casting? You know, I love, I love casting, as you can tell, and I love reading actors and meeting people, hearing them, and, and reading people, as I say, for these really small roles, which I think are so vital to the, to the overall feeling of a, of a movie. So I, I really enjoy a day of reading actors. It can be hard, it can be tiring, but I love it. Cool. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? None. I got so lucky to have the perfect job for me. I love that. I haven't had that before. That's really good, Ellen. Uh, Number five, this is really hard. If you could work with one person living or dead, who would it be? I guess it's probably a director, maybe. I don't know. I got lucky, you know. But I I really enjoyed working with a lot of the directors that I've worked with. Jim Jarmusch is somebody else that I worked with, um, you know, and got to collaborate with Juliana Mike Nichols, Jim Stanley Tucci, I did his early films. All these people are like amazing. But obviously my longest relationship is with Martin Scorsese. So I just got really lucky. Not a bad list. But I should mention other people. There are so many great directors that I would love to work (laughs) with. So, you know. Check out Ellen's IMDb for all the list. (laughs) Uh, Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? You know, I don't know if there is a specific book. As I've said, I feel like I read a lot, but I don't read. I don't think about um, a movie when I'm reading a book. I really just read because I love reading. And then I would say that I get more inspiration, like going to see an exhibit of Helen Levitt. And then I feel very inspired by that. That was an exhibit I saw at the Metropolitan Museum 
some years back. And it just kind of like, I want what I work on to have the feeling of these photographs that I'm looking at. Love it. And finally, normally I ask Ellen, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Which I will ask, but could you also explain why that's an annoying question to ask a casting director? Because we don't get an Oscar. Obviously, casting directors are not recognized by the Academy with an Oscar. Uh, It's unfortunate. It's not correct. I think that, as I've said, we're almost the first people on the movie. And a lot of people don't have a job to do unless we've done our job. I mean, it's all about the actors who are going to be in a play or a movie or a TV show. Um, you give you give them the canvas, I guess. Exactly. So now you have people to, you know, build a set for and make costumes for. And But, you know, I work with great artists. It's just, it's just an unfortunate thing that the Academy continues to not recognize us with an Oscar. Absolutely. And on that note, thank you so much to you, Ellen, for joining me today. It was such a privilege to hear your incredible stories and advice. And frankly, just to talk to someone who has worked on the level of movies that you have. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow and be able to interview more amazing film and TV professionals, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. If you're interested in regular updates, the best thing you can do is to join our mailing list at redcarpetrookies.com or alternatively, find us on Instagram at redcarpetrookies or Twitter at rcrookiespod. I also tweet regularly about my own learnings in the business at Mike F. Battle on Twitter, so please do come and say hi. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time.